The Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies presents the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Lecture Series 2021-5781. This year, we are delighted to feature a three-part series with Professor Rabbi Dahlia Marks, entitled Women's Prayers and Women Prayers from Chana to Today. Be sure to subscribe and get all of the latest from Pardes Online. You can do so by visiting elmod.pardes.org or you can find us on Spotify. And now, part one, from the Bible to the Talmud, with Professor Rabbi Dahlia Marks, and with an introduction from Rabbi Leon Morris and Dr. Mark Brettler. Erev Tov, everyone, from Jerusalem. I'm Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm also an alumnus of Pardes, uh, where I studied 25 years ago. Thank you for joining us for this opening lecture of the Brettler Lecture Series, which was established in memory of Sydney and Miriam Brettler, Zichonam Libracha. We, we have a global audience, and many of you joining are not entirely familiar with the mission and vision of Pardes. Uh, Pardes believes that everyone should have equal access to an immersive text-based Jewish education and that deep Jewish learning is the inheritance of every single Jew. At Pardes, we celebrate the diversity of Jewish life and we believe that Jewish learning can provide a common language of understanding and discourse and meaning. Pardes has both long-term and short-term programs and classes here in Israel, in North America, and online. And I'm really delighted to welcome you here. I'm particularly excited because Rabbi Dr. Dahlia Marks is a dear friend and a cherished colleague. I want to invite you throughout the lecture uh, to pose a question in the chat and the questions will be addressed at the end of the lecture as time allows. I wanna particularly thank the Brettler family and acknowledge their presence tonight. Uh, Mark, Dina, and Ellie, what an honor you've given to your parents' memory. On behalf of Pardes, I wanna thank you for magnifying both the memory of your parents and magnifying the Torah on their behalf and on ours. Yagdil Torah V'yadir. I want to call upon uh, Professor Mark Brettler to introduce this evening's program and our featured speaker. Thank you very much. It gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you to this year's Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Lecture Series and to have in this Zoom audience, all of you, and especially my brother Elias, my sister Dina, other relatives, and several friends of my parents. The three of us thank Pardes for enabling us to honor our parents through this series. Our parents, Sydney and Miriam Brettler, were the children of immigrants who arrived in the United States as part of the great early 20th century migration from Eastern Europe. They grew up in very Jewishly oriented homes. My father, Sydney, attended an afternoon cheder. He actually paid attention and decades later was proud of his ability to help me with my yeshiva flapash gemara homework. My father was intensely interested in Jewish history and culture, manifested in his large book collection, some of which is now housed in the Pardes library. After making Aliyah, Pardes was an important home for slaking his thirst for Jewish learning, and he was happy to count Rabbi Danny Landis, Cheryl Robbins, and Alex Israel among his friends. My mother was a much beloved kindergarten teacher, PS 180 in Borough Park, where I grew up before it was the Borough Park as we now know it. Her reputation as a teacher was such that some of the Orthodox families sent their daughters to my mother's class where they could be certain that they would be treated with respect and that the pretzels served at snack time would be kosher. My mother, who had studied Hebrew at Thomas Jefferson High School in Brooklyn, and could be convinced to sing one of the songs, one of the school songs, Bevet Sifrenu Thomas Jefferson, 
Anu Lomdim Ivritz, Menahaleinu, who Dr. Lieberman, and so forth. She was my first Hebrew teacher. Attention spans these days, especially on Zoom, are brief. So my introduction for Rabbi Dr. Marx will be brief. Dahlia Marx is the Rabbi Aaron D. Pankin Professor of Liturgy and Midrash at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Jerusalem. Ordained by HUC and with a PhD from the Hebrew University, she is a 10th generation Jerusalemite on her mother's side. Her books on different aspects of liturgy and the liturgical year are, one about transition times in liturgy, Another about the entire liturgical calendar. She has co-authored a prayer book, Sidur Tefillat Adam, and has written a volume in a feminist commentary on the Talmud. She has, authored, she has also co-authored a Haggadah for our time. But she has done much more than write books. She's a significant public intellectual who has written over 250 scholarly and popular articles. And this is if we count her over 500 contributions to the Israeli Bible 929 project as one single article. And many of her articles are fun to read and of significant contemporary relevance. I will mention only one here, since it reminds me of one of the many bad jokes my father used to tell about the reformed Jewish American who was on his first trip to Jerusalem and went to the reformed synagogue in Jerusalem on Shabbat and then complained that the services were in Hebrew so he could not understand a word. Rabbi Dr. Marx has written an article that I'm sure our father would have enjoyed called, When Lashon HaKodesh is also the vernacular, the development of Israeli reform liturgy. She has also written one of my favorite articles for the Torah.com for Yom HaTzmaut several years ago on the biblical sources and successive revisions of HaTzikva. As you'll soon hear, she's also a remarkable teacher. One of her former students whom I know described her as both incredibly knowledgeable and maintaining a perpetual sense of curiosity and openness about liturgy, thus allowing room for both liturgical traditionalists, and these are my friend's words, and the hippie dippy types. My friend told me that, of a, that a traditionalist father of a friend of hers heard Rabbi Dr. Marx on the radio and was so impressed with her that he stopped opposing the whole Hebrew Union College enterprise, which he had until then thought was pointless. Tonight, we'll have the pleasure of hearing her begin her three-part lecture series, Women's Prayers and Women Prayers from Hannah to Today. Today's lecture is titled from the Bible to the Talmud, Rabbi Dr. Marx. Professor Mark, uh, for this uh, way too generous uh, introduction. I'm very, very honored and moved uh, to be here with you today in the opening of uh, the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Lecture Series. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dina. Mark is a colleague. Dina is a co-worshipper. We, we dive in together. And thank you, Elias, for your trust. Thank you, Mahon Pardes, Rabbi Leon Morris, and Alex Israel, and all the good people of, of Pardes. And I'm really opening this series with a sense of uh, the psalmist, what he called Vegilu Bereada, rejoiced while trembling. Uh, as you can probably hear, my English is, a, <laughs> is, not, a, is not a native speaker um, a kind of English, but I, I will do my best. I think the topic that we chose for this series is important and interesting beyond the academic scope of it, because it really may help us to shape our understanding of what it means to be a Jewish woman and to be a Jewish religious woman today. What can we learn from our ancestors? And I can tell you right away, most of what we can learn 
is not documented. So it is our task to sort, sort of pull some strings and try to, to, to make a, 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 a thread uh, or, or a, a cloth of all of them together. Let me upload my PowerPoint. So Jewish women's prayer and Jewish women prayers in antiquity. Today we're gonna have three chapters, Bible, Second Temple, and Talmud. I don't know if we will get to the Talmud today, but if we don't, we still have next week. But first of all, when we talk about women and prayer, what actually are we talking about? We, we're talking about more than one thing. We're talking about women as prayers, as we just said. We're talking about prayers composed by women and, and sometimes prayers that are composed for women. And it's interesting to see what those who compose the prayers for women thought should be women's prayer. We can talk about prayers mentioning women and we can talk about what you know this what can we so-called called feminine prayers and what does it really mean so let us start with our journey um first of all why do we need to talk about women's prayers at all you know women compose the 50 percent of the population more or less why do we need to do that so let me just mention that named women make up only 5.5 to 8 percent of all the named characters in the Bible, for example. And in the rabbinic literature, it's even less. So we're gonna have to, we're gonna really have to look for these voices, for these women voices. And we're gonna do it in a, in a very layered uh, uh, manner. So what can we say about prayers in the Tanakh? First of all, we know uh, that most of the prayers in the Tanakh are spontaneous prayers event-specific prayers. I'm not talking about the Psalms right now, but we will mention Psalms in a second. Um, event-specific, someone is in a distress. Jacob is afraid to meet his brother Esau, so he, he launches, he, he prays. Yeah, Moses wants to heal his sister, so he prays on her, her behalf. So these are uh, um, uh, event-specific occasional prayers, what we're, what we're talking about. And we really don't know much about the prayer of the normal person, of the individual person during the Tanakh period. We only have what we have in the liter literature. So let's see what, what, we, what we can find of that. First of all, let me ask, when was the first time we humans even prayed? Yeah. And I, I, I just want a, a quick note before we begin. We're going to have to confine ourselves to talk about women and prayer. There are so many very interesting things that we cannot really go into because they are not in our topic. And even, even our topic, will we're going to have to struggle to, to make as much as we can in the short time that we have. Uh, so we were go we're going to concentrate on women in prayer. But first of all, what was the first prayer when people really started to pray? So we see in Genesis 4, um, the last verse of Genesis 4 says, as for Seth too, to him too was, a bo was born a son and he named him Enosh. Yeah, in, in, in modern Hebrew, Enosh means human. It was then that men began to invoke the eternal. So you see, I highlighted the word men because if you look at the Hebrew, it doesn't say men. It says, as huchal likro b'shem Hashem. That is to say, it uses the indifferent uh, in voice. It uses the passive voice, which is harder to translate into English. So the translation of the JPS and many others chose to translate it as it was then that man began, but it's not, it's not necessarily man as male, it's people, right? But if I look at the first verse in this chapter, I see something very interesting. So it's not just Shet, who was the, the son of uh, Adam and Eve, and Enosh was the third, third generation of humanity. We see a person who invokes the name of God already in the first generation of humanity. And of course, I'm talking about Chava, about Eve. The first verse in this chapter says, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore, born, bore Cain, saying, I can kaniti ishet Hashem. I have gained or I have acquired a man or a male son with the eternal. So in a very simple way, 
Eve is, is, is invoking the name of God. She invokes the name of God even before uh, it was a general thing. Can we consider it a prayer? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. It's really according to your opinion here. But I would say that at least sometimes when we have midrashim of women who gives, give names to their offsprings and explain the, the meaning of the name, in some cases it is definitely a prayer. Take, for example, Leah, when she bore her uh, fourth uh, son. Uh, and she said, uh, uh, now I'm going to thank the God, uh, uh, thank God, Odeh et, uh, et Adonai. Yeah? And then she calls him Yehuda, Judah. So maybe that was the first prayer. I don't know. Ha Eve was the first woman, woman on earth. Who was the last major female character in the Hebrew Bible? I would say it was Ruth. And Ruth was a very religious person. She joined Naomi and she said, Elohai, Elohai, your God may be my own God. But there's a, also another blessing, I would say, uh, that was given to, to her husband, to Boaz. Oops, that's not what I wanted here. That's what I wanted. Um, and, and, and this, this blessing um, is not a prayer to God, but it is a blessing invoking God's name, and it mentions the name of our ancestors. Yeah? May the eternal make the woman who, who comes into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who too, which too did build the house of Israel. Yeah, so we, remember we said sometimes we want to see if women's names are mentioned in Tfilot. So here we have that. I'm going back to, a, to my question, what was the first prayer in the history of the world or the, as it is depicted in the book of Genesis? Maybe we can even see Hagar as the first worshiper. So Hagar has a revelation of the angel of God twice. Here's the second time, which is also depicted in the High Holiday Liturgy when we read it uh, uh, in the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, uh, Hagar is in the wilderness. She was deported to the wilderness. And then it says on verse 16, and she went and sat down at, the, at, the, at a distance, at a bow shot away, for she thought, let me not look on, the, on, on as the child dies. And sitting thus afar, she lifted her voice and cried. And from this cry, immediately, like a Dios ex machina, God hears this voice and responds. Could it be that her cry encompasses a prayer, a wordless prayer maybe? but nevertheless a very uh, heartfelt prayer because we hear and God hears the cry of the boy, interestingly enough, not the voice of Hagar, but the voice of the boy and an angel, oh, I can't see that here, sorry. An angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you Hagar? Fear not for God has heeded the cry of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy, hold him by the hand for I will make a great nation of him. So whether or not it is a prayer, it is interesting from a phenomenological, uh, phenomenological point of view, because this is not a necessarily a word, a, a, a verbal prayer, but it is a very, nevertheless, a very emotional prayer. I move on to the prayer that we all, and it's also in the title of our series, that we all think about when we think about prayers of women in the Bible. And that's the prayer of Hannah. Now, I, I, um, I debated with myself if we should read the entire text or not. I think we won't because I think the text is relatively known. Let us just uh, mention um, that, uh, um, that here, let me just upload the text first. Here. Um, so uh, we hear about a, a woman whose husband is married to two women. One of them has children. One of them, Hannah, does not have children. And she's marat uh, nefesh. And she has a, a wretch, wretchedness of heart. And then she comes to, uh, to the temple, to the Shiloh temple, to the Shiloh tab tabernacle, and pray to the God. And she cries, she weeps, and she makes a vow. You know, if God, if you hear my voice, if you hear my prayer, then I will dedicate this, uh, this son to you. 
And the interesting thing here is that Eli, the, the local priest, it says, yeah, Eli keeps her, her mouth, he, he looks at her, and it seems like he doesn't really know what she's doing because he thinks that she's drunk, yeah? She's Hana. Now Hana is praying, was praying in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And then he rebukes her. He says to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? And she answers him, this poor woman, you know, with a very bitter heart, she, she responds and she says, oh, no, my Lord, I'm a very unhappy woman. I have drunk no wine or other strong drink, but I have a, I've been pouring my heart out my heart to the Lord, to the internal. Do not take your maidservant for a, a worthless woman. I've been only speaking all this time out of my great anguish and distress. And then, as we know, um, Eli understands his mistake. He, he sends her home and he, and he promises her that God will grant her what she asked for, that is to say, a son. So the prayer of Hannah uh, became a very paradigmatic prayer. It became a paradigmatic prayer because we actually talk about two prayers. This prayer is a prayer of supplication, of, of request. She, she, she asks God for, for, for the child. And the next chapter is a, is a psalm of thanksgiving. And a lot of scholars debated if, if, a, if a simple woman uh, could really compose this beautiful prayer, but uh, it became um, a paradigmatic prayer of thanksgiving and especially thanksgiving of, uh, uh, that has to do with women, yeah? And Hannah prayed, my heart exalted in the Lord, in the eternal. I have triumphed through the eternal. I gloated over my enemies. I rejoice at your deliverance. And especially look at, uh, at, at verse five that um, refers to her situation as a, as a barren woman who conceived. Men once sated must hire out of uh, uh, bread Men once hungry, hunger no more, while the barren woman bears seven, the mother of many is forlorn. Let's see what this prayer did in the, in the, in the history of, 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 of the Jewish uh, uh, liturgy, but not only the liturgy. So we are, we are very fortunate to be here with uh, Professor Mark Rettler, who recently wrote about Psalm 113. This is the first Psalm of the Hallel prayer that we're seeing on festivals. And he says that at least the second part of the psalm is based upon the song of Hannah in the book of Samuel that we just saw. And it constitutes maybe a prayer of a barren woman who is happy to conceive, happy to be, uh, to, to be able to, to bear a child. Now he compares these two texts, Psalm 113 and, Samuel, uh, and, and 1 Samuel chapter 2. And he concludes that Samuel is older, older text. And, and the Psalm is sort of tries to imitate an ancient language, archaic language, but it is based upon, uh, upon that. So if he's right, and we don't really, we can't really prove it, but I think it's a very, very compelling idea. If he's right, that a prayer that marked this uh, moment in, in a woman's life was embedded in the liturgy without the reference to the original uh, uh, the original uh, um, existential context, it may tell us that there were other psalms that were composed for to mark life cycle events of women that were not preserved or did not make it into the canon. And I think this is a very compelling way of thinking about it. So this is one offspring, if I may call it this way, of Hannah's prayer. Another offspring um, is in the, in the Christian Bible. I don't like to call it uh, the New Testament because for me there's one testament. Um, well, it's the Christian Bible in, in Luke chapter one. And that's the song of Mary when Mary meets her cousin um, and after she, was, she received the annunciation from angel Gabriel that she's gonna have a, she's gonna have a, a, a child in a, a um, divine way. 
she, she uh, formulates this prayer that is very similar in its content and also in its metaphors to the prayer of Hannah. And on the left side, you can see a picture that was taken from the a church of visitation not so far away from here in Ankarim. And here you can see the text of the Song of Mary that is also called the Magnificat uh, in many, many languages. And the Magnificat is, is an important part in the Christian liturgy. Uh, in the Catholic Church, it's, it's part of the Vespers in the, every, uh, the daily evening prayer. It's also in the Anglican Church. And in other uh, uh, denominations, it is also used, the Song of Mary or the Magnificat. So here you see another offspring of the prayer of May, uh, 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 Hannah. So it became uh, 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 like a uh, formula, formula of, of, of prayer for, for women who conceived after waiting for a long time to have a child. That's what we saw in, 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 in the Hebrew Bible in Psalm 113, if Mark Redler is correct, and I, I hope he is. And we see that it is also a paradigm of prayer for in the, in the Christian uh, liturgy that we saw in, in, in Luke. Um, it became a paradigm of rules and regulations and halachot uh, in the Jewish law. We, we will see it hopefully in the Talmud Bavli in Tractate Brachot. And it entered the, uh, uh, it has a place in the Jewish liturgy as it is read on Rosh Hashanah prayer on the first day. And if you want to see more about it, uh, then uh, Dr. Tova Hartman wrote about Hannah's unconventional prayer and, and her different voice that she makes and how uh, it became prominent uh, in, in the culture. So that's, that's some things that I wanted to say about Hannah's prayer. I move on to the second chapter. You see, we, we do it relatively fast. And here I want to talk about women and prayer in the second temple period, that is to say from the uh, uh, returning uh, from, of the Jews from Babylon until the destruction of the second temple in, in, uh, uh, in the year 70 common, in common era. Uh, and here we can see that uh, for the most part, I would say, the, the main worship of the Jews had to do with, with the offerings and, the, and, the, and things that have to do with the temple. We will get to the temple first, but let us see two examples that I find very uh, interesting um, of, of literary characters of women who pray. And in the second temple literature, and this is interesting because it kind of gets lost after that in the rabbinic time. And we're gonna have to ask ourselves, why is that? that we have so many very developed and interesting prayers of women in the second temple period. And then they kind of disappear in the Tanaitic and Amoraic period, that is to say the classical rabbinic time. So the first example that I wanna bring here is uh, the prayer of Esther. Now, all of you know that the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther presented uh, a challenge to our ancestors. This is a very challenging book because uh, on one hand, uh, Esther and Mordecai, it doesn't happen in the land of Israel. The main characters don't want to go back to the land of Israel. We don't hear about their offsprings. Uh, their names are not necessarily Jewish name. Well, Esther has a Jewish name, Hadassah, but she's called Esther, which, which rings a bell with Ishtar or Stara that uh, has pagan meaning in it. Uh, no prayers. No name, the name of God is not mentioned in the Megillah. Um, eh, 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 after the Jews are saved from their persecution, no thanksgiving, nothing. Not, no, no Jewish, it's, it's not a very Jewish text between us, right? And, there, and, I, and, and above all that, Esther marries a foreign king, which is a big no-no. This is something that the, the whole massacre of Shechem happened because uh, Dina was taken by a non-Jew, and here uh, she marries a foreign king. What are we going to do with that? And and you know that there, uh, there were discussions in the Talmud, in the in the um, uh, rabbinic literature, whether the Book of Esther should be included in the in the in the Hebrew Bible canon, yes or no. And the, my one of my favorite midrashim is that Esther herself appears in the house of study and says to them, you know, please, I, I, I need to be in the canon. I want to be remembered for, gener remembered for generations. 
Nevertheless, Esther, the book of, of Esther is problematic in that sense. And Jews throughout the ages in the means of the Targum, or the translated texts, in the means of the Midrash, in the means of other texts that were juxtaposed to the, the book of Esther, try to deal with this, uh, with this very problematic uh, issue. So one of the most ancient ways of dealing with uh, the, pr the, the problematic uh, aspects of the book of Esther is uh, what we see in the Greek translation of the scroll, the Septuaginta Targum Shivim, and the, 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 the translation that was done by Jews probably Hellenistic Jews uh, uh, in Alexandria probably uh, uh, present a very different character of the book of, of Esther. First of all, the name of God is mentioned. Everybody is very pious. And you have minor additions and you have big additions. And two of the additions have to do with prayer. You have the prayer of Mordechai, which is relatively short and concise. And you have the prayer of Esther. And the prayer of Mordechai and Esther appear at the moment uh, when, when the Jews find out, when Esther finds out about uh, Haman's uh, uh, plan to destroy and to kill all the Jews. Let's see this, this prayer and read it. And I want to invite you to, to see if you can find within it, um, if there's something that is necessarily or essentially feminine in this text of prayer. Then Queen Esther, seized with deadly anxiety, fled to the Lord. She took off her splendid, you see, I prefer to use the word eternal when it comes to the ineffable name of God, because I think it's closer to the, to the original meaning in Hebrew, but uh, here I use, a, I use a, the a NRVSV translation, so I, I'll follow their, uh, their lead on that. So she fled to the Lord. She took off her splendid apparel and put on garments of distress and mourning. And instead of her costly perfume, she covered her hair with ashes and dung and she utterly humbled her body. Every part that she loved to adorn, she covered with her tangled hair. Probably she had a very, very long hair. She prayed to the Lord of God of Israel and said, so you see, we don't just have the text of, her, of the prayer, we have the entire setting of the prayer. So she really uh, puts herself in a, in a low place. She takes all, away all, her, all the signs of her royalty and she, she places herself in a very low uh, position be, be, before, the, before the eternal. And then she says, oh, I can't see that. Oh my, oh my Lord, you only are our King. Help me who am alone and have no helper but you. So after addressing God, she just says it. She says what she needs. She says it right away. She doesn't go around the bush. She said, you know, help me. I'm alone. I'm all alone. And so she starts with her own distress and then she's gonna, as you see, she's gonna put it in the context or in the national context, context. For my danger is for my danger is in my hand. Ever since I was born, I have heard in the tribe of my family that you, O Lord, took Israel out of the nations and our ancestors from among all their forebears for an everlasting inheritance, and that you did for them all that you promised. So right away she says, I'm not expecting you God to do something that you don't do. It's all under your job description. All I want you to do is just be what you can be. You know, help me just the way you help my ancestors. So you, you see, she puts her prayer in the, in the larger context of the generation, of the prayer of generation. And now she starts with a confession. And now we have sinned before you and you have handed us to our enemies because we glorified your, their gods. You are righteous, O God, O, o, o Lord. O Lord, do not surrender your scepter to that uh, that has no being. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> and do not let them laugh at my downfall, but turn their plan against them 
and make an example of him who began this against us. Remember what she said, what she does here. Look at the last verse, verse seven. It's very much the essence of the vidui, of the penitential prayer. To you, O Lord, the eternal is the righteousness and we are just shameful being. Yeah? So, so you, you, uh, she abases herself, she acknowledges her sins and from this low place, she asks for help. And then she says, remember, O Lord, make yourself known in this time of our affliction and give me courage Oh Lord, or King of gods and master of all dominion. Put eloquent speech in my mouth before the lion and turn his heart to hate the man who is fighting against us so that there may be an end of him and those who agree with him. So you can see that what she's doing here is she's, she's praying, she starts with herself. Then she, she gives the context of the Jewish history and then she, she places her, uh, uh, her um, task within the task of saving her people. And that's the last part of the prayer. I, I skipped a few verses, but uh, this is the main, main, uh, main phrases here. But save us by your hand and help me who, who am alone and have no helper but you, O Lord. I abhor, now she, she gives us, yes, she talks with God, but she's really talking with us, the readers, who maybe wondered, you know, what a nice Jewish girl does in the, in the palace of, of the foreign king. Now she's going to give us an explanation what's going on there. I abhor the sign of my proud position, which is upon my head, my crown, on, on days when I appear in public. I abhor it like a filthy rag. Um, I think I think it's uh, um, uh, some of the translation talks about um, menstruational rag, really something that is 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 defiled. And I do not wear it on days when I am at leisure. What are the days when I am at leisure? She keeps the Shabbat probably, right? She's a very very religious, nice Jewish girl. And your servant has not eaten at Haman's table. I keep kosher. I have not honored the king's feast or drunk wine of libation. I don't drink Yenesech. I don't drink, drink the foreign wine. Yeah. Your servant had no joy since the day that I was brought here until now, except in you, O Lord God of Abraham. So I don't enjoy this whole situation. Don't think that this is something that I enjoy doing. I, I do it because I have to do it. Yeah. I have a task here. I have a role here. And then she concludes her, 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 her prayer saying, oops, I was, I guess I was muted. I, I, okay, I hope you hear me because it looks as, as if I'm muted. Um, oh God, whose might is all over, hear the voice of the despairing, and save us from the hands of the evildoer and save me from, from my fear. So it's not just a, a, the national task here, it's also save me from my fear because I'm in such a terrible distress. So that's the first, uh, the first uh, uh, women, woman that I wanted to bring here, how that Targum, the Greek translation of the Bible, sort of converted Esther into being a very, very uh, religious and pious, and modest woman. Another way of dealing, or another uh, uh, text that deals with the difficulties that you can find in the scroll of Esther uh, is the book of Judith, that some scholars believe that was composed to answer specifically these, these questions. Because if you juxtapose Judith and Esther, I mean, now I'm talking about Esther in, the, in our Megillah, in our book of Esther, not, not the, in the translation, if you juxtapose between them, you see that Judith is very different. First of all, Judith, look at her name, her name, you know, what can be more Jewish than Judith? Yeah, and she lives in Butulia. What is Butulia? No, not in Shushan uh, back there, you know, enjoying uh, on the rivers of uh, the, the Hudson Valley, or the, the Hudson River or the, 
the Babylonian, uh, the, the Persian uh, luxuries. She lives in Judea, in, in Butulia, which is, Butulia could be a, 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 a corruption of the name Beit El, or something that has to do with Betula, that is to say a virgin. Judith is, uh, the story of Judith, which I, I'm gonna tell in a very, very short way. Uh, she's a, a, a widow, a rich and beautiful and pious widow that, uh, uh, that stays at home after her husband passed away and she doesn't go out. But then she realizes that the leaders of the people are going to surrender to the, uh, to the invader who's called El Holofernes. This is a very anachronistic uh, names because it seems like he's the um, um, the, um, the chief the chief chief of staff the, 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 the head of the army of, of uh, the Babylonian king which is definitely not the case the, the text of Judith is probably from the Hesmonate period uh, and the story is probably not an historic one but it is a a legend, a fantasy maybe of a victory, a military victory. Uh, so, so she decides to take things into her hand and go to the camp of the enemy and sort of seduce the local king and then the, the local leader, Holofernes, and then kill him, which she does. She comes back to, to, the, to her camp, to, 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 to her city with his head. And that's a, a trope that is, um, you can see a lot in, uh, in art uh, depictions. Um, and the Jews uh, won and they prevailed over their enemies. Now the book of Judith, unlike the scroll of Esther, our scroll of Esther, is, is filled with prayer. People are praying all the time. People are very, very uh, pious and very religious. And let me just uh, bring you here the prayer of Judith uh, uh, before she launches her, uh, her uh, 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 journey into the camp of the enemy. Yes, by the way, she appears only on chapter eight of the, of the book. Okay, so here we have the book of, uh, of uh, Judith. And this is chapter eight, nine. Then Judith prostrated herself, put ashes on her head and uncovered the sackcloth that she was wearing. Uh, by the way, you see again, you see the, 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 the setting of, of the prayer, not just the text, but how she deals with her body, what she does with her clothing before she prepares herself to, to pray. And look at the very interesting uh, mark that we have here. When exactly was, she, was this prayer? When did it take uh, place? At the very time when the evening incense, the ktoret, was being offered at the house of, the God, of, of, of God in Jerusalem, Judith cried out to the Lord with a loud voice and said, now we're going to have the text of the prayer, but you see that she synchronized her prayer with the, uh, with the time of the um, incense, um, incense offering in the temple of, of, uh, uh, of Jerusalem. So you can see, a I think it's a very interesting way of, of combining the prayer, the individual prayer, the prayer of, the, of this uh, spectacular individual with the normal protocol of prayer, of, of worship, of liturgy that you find in the temple of Jerusalem. Let's see what she was saying. Oh Lord, God of my ancestor Simeon. Oh, my ancestor, my ancestor Simeon. That cannot be uh, just, a, just a statement. She sees herself as a descendant of Shimon, the son of Jacob who um, in a way, well, according to what she says here, protected the honor of Dina when he uh, uh, committed the massacre with his brother Levi in the people of Shechem after Dina was raped slash taken or went with, uh, with the son of the leader of, 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 of the city. So by mentioning her ancestor as Shimon, we know where it is going to protect my honor, protect my sexual honor in a way. So, O Lord God of my answer, Simon, to whom you gave sword to take revenge of those strangers who had torn off the virgin clothing and defiled her. Of course, she's talking about Dina, as we said, and exposed her thighs 
to put her in shame and polluted her womb to disgrace her. For you said it shall not be done. Yeah, you said. So I'm, I'm not asking of anything that is not within the protocol of what we can expect from you, God. You gave up their rulers to be killed. Oh God, my God, hear me also, a widow, right? She, she, calls, herself, she calls herself a widow. I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm in a very low place. I'm one of the uh, low or, or weak segments of society, although she was a very fine and rich uh, widow, but this is how she chooses to present herself. Oh, it's, it's on my text here, okay. For your strength does not uh, depend on numbers, you, you, nor your might on powerful. But you are the God of the lowly, helper of the oppressed, upholders of the weak, protectors of the forsaken, savior of those without hope. Please, please, God of my father, God of the heritage of Israel, Lord of heaven and earth, creators of the waters, king of all your creation hear my prayer and indeed oh sorry I, I i cited a little before make my deceitful words being oh, sorry it just it covers my my text all the time uh bring wound and bruise on those who have planned cruel things against your covenant yeah this is what we call it don't protect me. I'm okay. I can be killed. I can be defiled. That's fine with me. But do it for your sake, for your covenant. Yeah. And against your sacred house and against Mount Zion, Zion and against your house, your children, your children, the house your children possess. Let your whole nation and every tribe know and understand that you are God and the God of, the, of all power and might and that there is no other who protects the people of Israel but you alone. I had to capitalize a few words here. I'm sorry about that. So here we have two, uh, two uh, prayers of individuals, or, but both of them are prayers that are put in, in literary uh, characters, right? They're, they're, not a protocol, they're not a citation of real women. Now let us see, and we don't have much time. We only have 12 minutes left. Um, so I, I'm going to try to be uh, as quick as I can uh, to talk a little bit about the temple in Jerusalem. And he, this is going to be a segue between the second temple time and the rabbinic time, because the temple was there, uh, of course, uh, until the destruction in, uh, in, in year 70. But the texts that we have are from the rabbinic time. So we don't always know if what the rabbis are telling us about the temple. And sometimes we have conflicting messages, especially when it comes to women and prayer uh, and how, what was the role of women in the temple and how far women could get into the temple and what could they do? We don't really know. We know what the rabbis wrote. So is it a, a historical depiction of what was in the temple? Maybe. Is it how the rabbis envisioned or even imagined what happened in the temple? Could be. But nevertheless, it is, I think, interesting. I will just mention that some of the rabbinic texts that we have about the temple are relatively uh, considered to be relatively old, and some of them may really represent the situation as it was in the temple. So first of all, let me uh, share with you uh, the, the picture of the, of the temple, uh, of the second temple, the Herod temple. And you can see that the outer court, you know, it's, it's built like a... Um, uh, matrushka or barbushka, you know, when uh, uh, you go, the, the further you go, the more sacred the place is, and we will see that in a second. The women's court uh, was basically the place where everybody was, yeah, it wasn't like what we have today that uh, that only women are in Ezrat Nashim. Ezrat Nashim was the place where everybody could, uh, was, uh, was uh, uh, present, right? Priests and Israelites, uh, men and women, you see at the four corners, the chambers, the chambers of wood, the chamber of the Nazarites, the chamber of oil, the chamber of uh, the lepers. Um, this is where uh, major public events took place. So uh, 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 
every seven years when you have Hakel, the assembly, this is where the king stood and read from the Torah. And on Yom Kippurim, the high priest, after completing the, uh, the, the special ritual, this is where he would read from the Torah to the people. This is where the Simchat Bet Shoeva, the uh, rejoicing over a libation of water took place. So basically, Ezrat Anashim, the women's court, or courtyard, or gallery, or however you want to translate it, was the place where men and women could be together. And this is very important for me to stress because uh, sometimes uh, when we talk about women and men and women praying together, and in this, uh, with us today, we have some people that I have the fortune to pray uh, in these uh, days of uh, our COVID-19 uh, situation. We have a, a praying group. We pray three times a day together, people from all the streams of Judaism, which is a very, very beautiful thing. Men and women, this is halachic, traditional prayer, but also egalitarian. Maybe we'll get to it in the last, uh, chef, uh, the last uh, part that we have. But sometimes people say to me, but there was always a Zrat Nashim, there was always women's court, even in the Talmud. Well, the, the answer is no. In the Talmud, the Zrat Nashim was meant for men and women together. In fact, the first time that we see separate spaces of prayer for women are in the high Middle Ages, the beginning of the second millennium, not before that. So how do you interpret it? That's a different thing. Did women enter the synagogue and were with men? Were they sitting together separately? Did women not, in, not even go to the synagogue? You know, so one, one time a Lubavitcher rabbi said to me, this is very clear. You didn't need to have a women's gallery because women didn't go to the shul. But again, this is, this is what we have in front of us and it's up to us to evaluate how we understand this tradition. So let's see what the rabbis had to say about the women's gallery. First of all, uh, this is what I, I uh, this is a citation from Mishnah Kelim, the first chapter of Mishnah Kelim. And it says, Eser Kdushotem, there are 10 levels or 10 degrees of holiness. Actually, if you count it well, it's not 10, but 11. Here I highlighted them for you. And, and it starts from the, the less, lesser uh, holy place. Yeah, the land of Israel is holier than all lands and they're walled cities and then within cities and then the Temple Mount, etc. until we reach the holiest place in the temple and in the entire world, the, the place from which, according to the Jewish tradition, the entire world was established, and that's the Holy of Holies. And you can see that the, the, the further you enter the holiness, less people can enter and in very specific situations. So everybody can enter the land of Israel, of course, right? But only one person can enter the Holy of Holies and in only one occasion, right? And if you see the, the line before the last, the Holy of Holies is still holier for none may enter therein, save only the high priest and only on the day of atonement at the time of the service. Now, the interesting thing that here that you have is that you have all kinds of categories. And this is a very exclusive list. Until what point really can non-Jews enter? Until what point can people who are ritually impure can enter? Until what point can Israelites enter? Or priests, or priests that are uh, with some sort of blemish, or priests that are, uh, or, or the high priest. The one category that is missing here, and I would not assume that it is a, um, a mistake or someone just forgot to write it, is the category of, of, of gender. In no place in this list does it say how further women can enter uh, uh, the temple. What does it say to us? I don't know. Again, it is upon us to, to try to make sense of, of it all. I moved to Tractate Sukkah, and then it says, at the conclusion of the first day of the festival of Sukkot, they descended to the women's court and they would make a tikkun gadol, a great enactment. Now the Mishnah doesn't tell us what the great enactment was, but apparently, and here you see the, um, the what used to be the Holy Land, now it's in the Israel Museum, uh, uh, um, um, 
make of, of, of the ancient uh, Jerusalem in, in, uh, in the Herod's uh, time. What is this Tikkun Gadol? What is this great enactment? We don't, the Mishnah doesn't tell us here, but in a different place in the Mishnah, in Tractate Midot, it speaks about the women's court and it says originally it, that is to say the women court, has been there, but subsequently they surrounded it with balcony so that women could behold from above while men from below, so they don't become mixed. Now, if I take these two traditions together, which is not necessarily a kosher thing, but maybe I learned that every year in the first day of Sukkot, they did this great enactment. They separated between men and women. They did this tikkun gadol. So if they did this tikkun gadol every Sukkot and, and, and for, for the festival of Sukkot, because of the frivolous and lightheadedness maybe of or the uh, kalut rosh, no, you don't say lightheadedness, you say um, not very serious, maybe some alcohol going on and festivities. On this festival, they didn't want men and women to be together. So they separated them. So what does it tell me about the rest of the year? I think in the, it tells me that the rest of the year, men and women were not separated. They were only separated in the festival of Sukkot, which in a, a different place, the, the rabbis called Skaba de Shata. This is the wound of the year. This is the soaring place of the year because people are so happy and they do all kinds of things and you can't really um, you know, manage the situation. That's why you need to separate the genders. In the Talmud Bavli, uh, in Tractate Sukkot, uh, it, it, it tells us the following. It says, Tanu uh, Rabbanan, our rabbis taught, originally the women were within, that is to say within the temple court, while the men were without. But this called, called, caused lightheadedness. It called, caused, I don't know if lightheadedness is a good translation. It caused the light uh, attitude, if it, if it were. This, so, so they instituted that women sit without while the men sit within. As this, however, they still led to lightheadedness. This is still, you know, encounters between men and women that were not desired. So they instituted that women should sit above on the balconies and men below. So you can see here three stages of separation between men and women. The first one was women were inside and the men were outside or on the outer skirts of, of the women's court. And then they reversed it, it didn't help. And then they, they, they separated between men and women in terms of the, of the, um, of the levels, right? Women had to sit above. What does it teach you? You can learn from it all kinds of things. You can learn from it a very a hopeful voice and a very uh, distressing voice. I choose to take a, a hopeful lesson from it saying that it was important for them that women would be part of the celebration. Now, if you cannot have men and women together, you need to separate them, fine, but there's still, there's still importance that women will, will be together with men. I see that we kind of run out of time. I just wanna say, I just wanna mention uh, uh, when we get to the third chapter, women in prayer in the classical rabbinic time, that is to say the Tanaitic and the Amoraic times, the sages of the times of the Mishnah and the times of the Talmudim, here we will see something that is very, very strange because we all talk about, I remember you know, my BA years and all my professors used to talk about the great democratic revolutions of Chazal, of the rabbis. What a precious gift we brought to the world. Now you don't need a priest to perform the, the rituals for you. Every Jew can stand and lead a prayer. Every Jew can be counting a minion. Right, every Jew, if he's male, right? So in a way, and this is something that I find very intriguing, the very exclusive situation of the temple was more egalitarian toward women because everybody was excluded. The, 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 the priests ran the show. Of course, men could lay their hands on the korban, on the, on the offerings people could slaughter and you have discussions if women are allowed or not allowed to do so. But basically it was the priest's show, the Kohanim's show. 
Now, after the destruction of the temple, where everyone can basically um, lead a prayer, uh, that puts women aside. Yeah, and now you really have a marginalization of women. And we were gonna have to really look well to find in the rabbinic literature the threads that will tell us something about the world of prayer of women uh, in, 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 that, in that era. So, so interestingly enough, the world don't all, doesn't always progress ahead. It doesn't always go to a better place. Sometimes um, the, we go even backwards a little bit. So just to, uh, to summarize what we just said until now, I mentioned that we're gonna have to talk about several things simultaneously. We're gonna talk about women as prayers. We're gonna talk about prayers composed by women uh, or put in the mouth of women or composed for women, which will be a very important uh, part for us next week when we're gonna talk about the tchines, the prayer in the vernacular that were composed some of them by women and some of them for women. And we will see how those who composed them for women wanted to create this, this perfect Jewish woman through the words of prayer. Um, and then we can talk about prayers mentioning women. For example, the prayer, uh, the blessing uh, to Boaz mentioning uh, um, Rachel, Rachel and Leah, and then feminine prayers. We're gonna to have to ask ourselves, is the prayer of Judith, is the prayer of Esther in the tr Greek translation, are there necessarily, is there something essentially Jewish in them? I don't know. We're gonna to have to ask ourselves. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Parts two and three of this series can be found on our Spotify channel and on elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.